So, <coughs> so we've gathered here for the last Patimokha of the Vasa. Next Uposada will be Pawarana Day, the end of the Vasa. Time again to reflect on our practice of the Vinaya and the Dhamma. Reflect on how much we're, or how well we're upholding the training, the ways of practice that we've inherited from Lumpo Cha. It's been a branch monastery of Lumpo Cha. Even though we're thousands of kilometers away from his monastery. And this is where we receive our training from. And as he pointed out, ultimately we receive or inherit our means of livelihood back to the Lord Buddha himself. We wear the monk's robe, bhikkhu's robe, jiwara, take our arms bowl, And this is the way arahants have dressed with shaven heads since the time of the Buddha, the way the Buddha dressed, the way his enlightened disciples dressed, which gives this uniform or way of dressing that we have great value and importance and we can say parami it brings us our support every day people bring us food put it in our bowls every day people offer us the requisites provide us with the uh, the accommodation in a forest, a quiet place suitable for meditation. Look after us when we're sick. Bring us food every day. And this is all through the barami of the Buddha and then the good name of Ajahn Chah in the modern era. Lumpur Man, Lumpur Chah. The reputation is such that people trust that monks practicing in their lineage are practicing sincerely, keeping Vinaya, practicing the true Dhamma. Ajahn Chah always pointed out the Vinaya is essential to our practice. But at the same time, it's not the whole practice. It's balanced and supported by Dhamma. 
you would say the Vinaya is a matter of hate and pardon. Hate means like cause, condition. Pardon means result or effect. There's a matter of reasoning and logic, of right and wrong, do's and don'ts. It's clear cut. But it also is still a convention. So we have a, a self, a bhikkhu, who keeps the vinaya, keeps the rules, or breaks the rules. It's still on the conventional level. And then the dhamma, he said, is nokhet, nirpon. So it's outside of causes, conditions and above and beyond results, effects. In other words, it's transcendent. So the Dhamma even transcends the Vinaya. And the enlightened one, the sage, is enlightened through penetrating Dhamma, truth. Vinaya alone is not enough, but it's essential still in order to penetrate Dhamma, we have to have Vinaya. So the two are linked and inseparable. In the beginning of the dispensation and the bhikkhus didn't need Vinaya in the sense that they were already so <coughs> well established on the path their Bharami was so developed and refined that they naturally knew what was appropriate and inappropriate on the conventional level the Vinaya was just in their hearts already as so they lived together in harmony and didn't do inappropriate things and all their actions and speech external behavior was supportive of the Dhamma and transcending Sangsara but as time went on then more bhikkhus came into the Sangha different views and opinions, different standards, different attitudes, ways of behaving came along. This issue, that issue, problems. So this is how the Vinaya became laid down, codified, with different issues and problems arising and the Buddha being asked and he might make a rule, a ruling, a guideline based on some incident that happened. As the Sangha grows and spreads, then monks from varying backgrounds and with different levels of understanding and practice come in. So it's naturally natural that some are wiser than others, some are more developed than others the way of people and so Vinaya grew up 
So we have the basic principles of Vinaya. The one essential principle is harmony of the bhikkhu sangha. Ajahn Chah used to say, as you practice, always go back to these sort of basic root principles, essential principles. Think of your behavior and how harmonious it is with the group. If monks start to set up their own standards, go their own way, as the Buddha said, go in their own, don't go your own way because it sets a, a new standard and makes changes which maybe differ from the group and it starts to lead to conflict or disagreements. So the Vinaya supports and promotes harmony in the group. You're meeting together, dispersing at the same time, meeting at the same time, meeting. Say for the Patimoka, it's just taken. There's no doubt about it. There's no room for discussion or argument unless one is sick. And that means too sick to to come, too sick to walk. Then we come to the Patimoka. At the appointed time, we have come together. And there's no question of that. It just becomes normal as a bhikkhu. That kind of understanding and practice pervades our life. So when we have group activities, and unless there's a very uh, clear, obvious reason, such as sickness or some urgent problem, then one always attends group meetings, <coughs> group responsibilities, and so on. So it sets up a whole attitude and way of practice that pervades our lifestyle, sense of harmony. And then the ways of doing things in the monastery, we have the ways of practices, what we call the Korwata, Korwat from Thailand. We have a bowl and we eat in our bowl and we shave our heads on the same day, we wear the robes in the same way, we meet together. We have all kinds of practices which we've inherited and if so, if we were to sort of just set those aside and do new things, it'd be very easy for disharmony to arise because it's going our own way or going in a different way from before. Can you lead to confusion amongst the laity, confusion amongst new bhikkhus, confusion from one monastery to another monastery? And this obviously detracts from the environment for good practice, if there's a lot of confusion, disagreement, and then to go back to our kutis, meditate, developing samadhi and wisdom, gets harder. It's not conducive for those good monks who are interested to practice, it's not supportive. So these essential principles, even though they're not yet the Dhamma yet, maybe the 
leads to enlightenment, it's certainly a, an essential step on that path, understanding these core principles of the Vinaya. We have respect for seniority. And the Buddha laid down, even if one ordains just two minutes after another bhikkhu, one always is considered junior. And because we live together with harmony and trust, kindness and respect, that doesn't mean to say it's a cause to be exploited by others. It's just a convenient convention for living together. We have harmony based on respect and based on seniority, being junior, being senior. So junior, even by a few minutes, always sits after in the line or receives food after. Just a few years separate than even a monk who's three reigns, a monk who's... uh, six or seven reigns who has to ask permission to sit on the same seat separated by a few reigns in punsas. We have all kinds of rules and ways of behaviour showing respect for seniority and responsibilities of senior, senior monks towards junior monks. It's a reciprocal thing, it's not a one way thing. We show respect, each individual shows respect to each other individual. But we have these conventions that provide smoothness and harmony to Sangha. So we tend to listen to the views and experience of elders in the Sangha simply because they've been doing it longer and they know more and have had more time to contemplate and understand the teaching doesn't mean to say a junior bhikkhu's opinion or understanding is necessarily wrong, but we still value you know, the respect for elders. There's also an important principle there is that you know, however special a new bhikkhu may feel or may be in terms of parami, you may have great abilities in the Dhamma and the Vinaya, great knowledge, great meditative power, whatever. You can't become a new bhikkhu without old bhikkhus. It's impossible. You have to have an existing Sangha. So all of us are indebted to the bhikkhus who were there before us for allowing us to be admitted into the Sangha, accepted in our Upasampada ceremony. That's not based on personal qualities or special skills, whether we like those bhikkhus or not. It's transcendent of the more worldly way of looking at things. It's just accepting one needs a bhikkhu sangha to become a bhikkhu. So somebody who's reflecting on that naturally becomes wise grateful, appreciative of the fact that um, there's an existing Sangha that allows me to become a bhikkhu. So I say a novice or anagarika, one who aspires to become a bhikkhu, 
you always have to remember that fact. You can't do it on your own. You have to depend on a bhikkhu sangha to come into the sangha. All of us have been through that. We all have to appreciate that point. So the Vinaya is something that, on the one hand, it's a convention. As Ajahn Chah said, it doesn't yet take us all the way to enlightenment alone. It needs the Dhamma to balance. But we do have to practice it. We can't just dispense with it straight away. On the level of Vinaya, though, we have, we're still working on the level of self because it's conventional reality. Samuti, Panyati, there's, there's a sense of self, there's one, there's a bhikkhu who keeps rules, follows the Vinaya, keeps up, holds the Vinaya. So sometimes we can forget the Dhamma, lose the Dhamma with that. Sometimes views and opinions over Vinaya will come up, but we have to bring the Dhamma in then to help balance it so it doesn't become a cause for disharmony or too much agitation. Nothing wrong with uh, discussion and investigation of what is good Vinaya and learning. It's a learning process. But we also have to be aware that it's still working on that conventional level. Ajahn Chah talked about when he f- first started uh, Wapapong it's just a few monks, grassroots sala with a Buddha image. Just three or four monks together. But already, when people forget the Dhamma, then the Vinaya can become a problem. So, <coughs> there's no electricity in those days, so they used candles. The only candles were in the sala next to the Buddha statue. So one monk liked to read Dhamma books. They'd come in, light a candle, read a Dhamma book. And then he'd leave it there, put it down when he, when he left, put the candle out, left the Dhamma book there, go away. Then another monk would come in and it's dark, come in to meditate and chant maybe, and he'd trip over the Dhamma book. So he called... Another day called the other monk over there, you shouldn't leave a Dhamma book here, it's unrestrained, unmindful. It's not the right place. And the other monk said, well you shouldn't trip over a Dhamma book, you're unmindful, unrestrained. And there was no end to the argument, both accusing each other of being unrestrained, unmindful. And that's the limitation of Vinaya. It's easy to find fault with each other, easy to fall into arguments so we have to use Dhamma sometimes to resolve these things as well as we come into the monastery then the tendency is we're learning the Vinaya learning the rules and we're also looking around us at other people we're learning but as we learn, then it's easy to find fault with others. We're learning all the rules. We might look around and see other people, what's happening there, what are they doing? Because that's the tendency we have from the lay life, is always to be looking out. 
from our mind going out through our eyes and then judging. You know, any workplace, you hear the lay people come here, they talk about all this competing and comparing and trying to get ahead in the workplace. That's the way it is in the workplace. It's a war zone. People's aggression and sense of self comes out in that way and they're always trying to get on top of each other, climbing on top of each other by finding fault with each other. Sometimes it's true, sometimes it's created. That's our habit, that's our background as we come into the monastery. But the Dhamma Vinaya is all different from that. We're no longer sending our minds out, just looking at other people and judging them all the time. We're turning our attention inwards. So other people, we do have to look at them and learn, but maybe just 10% of the time. 90% of the time we have to look at ourselves, because that's where we can practice. If we're always looking at other people, then it becomes a big issue in the mind, something very big and important in the course of conflict. We have to turn that energy back on itself using mindfulness, restraint, wisdom, turn around and look at ourselves become more clear on our own behavior, on our own actions and what's going on. And that's the way of one who's practicing. And we do get to see and know what other people are doing as well. It's, it's part of the life, but that should, shouldn't be the biggest or the main emphasis. It's always turning back to say, what am I doing? How well am I keeping the Vinaya? It's a way of training. This is where the Dhamma comes in. The way you train yourself in Dhamma Vinaya is developing the, the one who knows, the Puru or the Bhutto. It's this inner ability to be aware in the present moment of what we're doing, what we're saying, what we're thinking, what we're doing. Again, this is not what we've been training out in the lay life. LA life, it's all been going outward to external skills, external knowledge. And that's why lay people suffer a lot. It's based on getting what you want and getting away from what you don't want. But that doesn't lead to uh, understanding the Four Noble Truths or penetrating them or transcending dukkha. In the monastery, though, we're developing Bhutto, the mind of the one who knows and the knowing. And this is inner wisdom, inner understanding that comes from starting to closely look and see our own behavior, what's going on, investigating more closely, bringing up mindfulness, clear comprehension and then investigating truth. So they always compare the, the one who knows the knowing, like the parents looking after the kid. It's that which starts to become more mature, wiser. And this isn't to just judge other people in what they're doing, because we can't be fully sure what they're doing, what their intentions are and what they're up to. But we can be clear and sure, of, become clear and sure of what we're doing, our own intentions and our own mental activity, our speech, our actions. So the one who knows is like the parents who start to look after the mind, guard over it, watch over it, watch out for danger. 
The Dhamma Vinaya is all about learning to see what is going to bring you harm, meaning bring you suffering in your behavior, in your speech, actions, thoughts. So you need something that will help to guard against falling into harm, falling into suffering, and that's, that's the one who knows. A parent, because of their experience, what they've learned and they know, well, they know danger for a kid. You know, they have a kid and a little baby. They know if you that baby runs near water, it might fall in and drown. If the kid runs near a road, it might get run over. If it goes near fire, it'll get burnt. The parent knows all the dangers, so it's always one step ahead of the kid. The kid doesn't know anything, it just runs here and there and very easily falls into danger. That's the mind of Kilesa. It doesn't know. It's called into greed, anger, delusion. But the one who knows is like the parent. It can see what's going on. It's looking, observing and learning and knows the danger so it's much more careful. It's on guard. It's the quality of apamada, heedfulness. One who is heedful isn't always just looking at other people and looking outside, they're looking inside. What's going on in my mind here? What am I doing? This quality that Ajahn Chah said, this is what we're bringing up both in the practice of Vinaya and Dhamma in our daily life. The one who knows, the one who is heedful, the parent. It's our own mind, just training it to a higher level. You can see that it will see where suffering comes from. When we become blind, say, where where the one who knows drops is where suffering arises, isn't it? Say, when it comes to, say, just views and opinions about Dhamma or Vinaya, there's nothing wrong with having a view on the Vinaya, knowing things, having a view or some aspect of Dhamma practice. But where the blindness comes in that causes the suffering is where we grasp at that view with a sense of self. Ajahn Chah said, where we hold hold up that view as as me, my view, sense of self. It's this phrase, ditti and mana. And ditti is the view, the opinion. Mana is the sense of self that holds that view, holds to that view tightly. It's okay to to hold a view in your mind, but don't grasp at it tightly. You have to be a bit flexible. It's that tight, tightly holding onto a view or fixing your mind on a view is where suffering starts to arise. It will cause you conflict with other people or just conflict and doubt within yourself. The only way we can see that is developing the the puru, the one who knows. Questioning and looking more deeply inside. And seeing what is going on, what is leading to what. You can see where suffering arises, where you hold on to a view tightly. And it becomes your view, my view, sense of self. And then there's always a chance for some kind of conflict or problem arise. 
is not just to do with other people, it's to do with ourselves as well. Views about what is good and right for me, what I like, what I want, what will make me happy. These are views. So what I don't want, what is bad for me, what is wrong for me. It's endless. It's the grasping, holding on f- firmly with a sense of self. And it becomes ditti mana. And this is where, particularly in the early part of our practice, most of our suffering is coming up. The Dhamma Vinaya is helping to expose that, show it to us. And the Vinaya sometimes is showing it to us when we have to do things we don't want to do and behave in ways we don't want to behave. When we have to be peaceful and harmonious and respectful when the mind doesn't want to be. And it's showing us our ditti mana, our sense of self, our ego, if you want another word for it. But you need the puru, the one who knows the butho, to see that. There has to be that willingness to start investigating, looking. Otherwise, we're always caught out by our own karma and the unpredictability of life. And we find we're constantly dropping into moods based on our sense impressions and what's going on around us. Suddenly we see a young lady and we fall into lust. Suddenly the mind is overwhelmed by desire, attraction. Somebody says something we don't agree with, suddenly we fall into anger. If there's no puru, there's no one who knows or investigation going on, then these moods and mental impressions just pop up and overwhelm us. Suddenly we're on fire. We're lust with anger or just delusion, fuzziness and confusion, not knowing what we're doing, forgetting ourselves. Where do these things come from? And this is where the puru starts to work. And often it has to work after the event. We can't always be perfectly mindful and catching ourselves at that moment. So sometimes we just have to accept that after the event, we're already on fire. We have to go and investigate that fire. It's, we can't stop it happening. We have to accept our karma and our kilesas, our attachments. I mean, well, moods will come up sometimes so fast we just don't even know where they're from. But the way to practice is to bring the puru to bear at that point, at that moment, and start working on it once once it's happened. It's like these crates that they sent send from other countries with offerings for the monastery sometimes they send us some shipment it's delivered a crate packed in plywood goods for the monastery sometimes they don't even pay for it and we have to pay a bill for that crate that's been delivered don't even know what's in it yet just have to pay a bill and then we have to get a crowbar and start breaking open the packaging the plywood Maybe inside it's still wrapped up and we have to cut with knives and scissors until we know what it is, books or a statue or something. Our moods are like that. They just pop up because the causes and conditions are right. Suddenly we're caught into lust or homesickness or aversion or depression. We have to start using our tools of the puru and our 
sati sampajanya and wisdom investigate. It's like using the crowbar and the knife to break open the packaging, start to lever it up and look inside more deeply, see what's inside. We didn't ask for it, but it comes. That's karma, isn't it? You have the sense of, why does this happen to me? Why did this come? I didn't ask for this, didn't want this, but it's happened. We have no choice. We have to accept that. The only way for a wise person to go is, well, start investigating, use your crowbar, lever it up. If it's lust, then you lever up. Meaning you start to use reflection on the body and see, well, what is it that you really have lust for? Where is the attraction? And when we do become ordained as a novice, the upajar gives us the, the the lever, the the crowbar for this. Kesa loma nakadantatacho. Hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin. You start looking at that, you know, the vision, the picture of that brings up attraction, desire. And looking more deeply to see why on earth do we fall in love or get infatuated with this vision? Why does it bring up pleasant feelings? Why does it take over the mind? You know, this is the puru and then start investigating the hair of the head. What does hair of the head grow in? It grows in blood and lymph, comes out with the grease of the body. We only think of the smooth, shining, well-combed, nice-coloured hair, nice-smelling hair. But what's hair coming out of? comes out of the various excrements of the body, various liquids that the body produces coming out of the blood, coming out through the pores. It's not coming from anything beautiful. This is getting the lever of Satisampajanya going in looking more deeply at that that superficial image which normally blinds us and just leads to a lot of attraction and infatuation and fantasizing. Or is anger, anger over opinions about things, about the monastery, about our life, about the way things are done. You look at that, look at the opinion that's forming and the sense of self that's forming around that, sense of me, sense of personal pride. And look at how real that is. Is there really a self there or is this just some notion, some idea that we're clinging on to? When we're idealistic sometimes, or we cling on to a sense of self based on what we know or who we are. Sometimes we attach, I know a lot, so I'm a monk who knows a lot. Or it could be just your seniority, juniority. Maybe somebody isn't respecting you. I'm a terror, I'm a majima, I ordain longer than them, they should show me respect. What is that? It's just an... uh, a view, isn't it, in the mind? It's just an image of self. We grasp at it, grasp at the words. Say somebody says something we don't agree with. What is that? It's just words. It's just air vibrations coming to the ear. The ear itself 
Yeah, it's just there, it doesn't know anything. And then there's vibrations with coming through the airwaves. We make that into words. The mind gives meaning to those words based on our pe perceptions and our views and it creates something out of those words and can create suffering. If there's no mindfulness, no wisdom, then it creates suffering out of those words. It adds on to the experience, adds on to the vibration of in the eardrum and even can create a raging fire of suffering based on some, some view or opinion or self-image. The eye seeing something, say, seeing another person, monk or lay person, judging what they do, but if there was no light, you wouldn't even be able to see what they're doing. The eyes don't have light. The eyes are just receptacles that depend on light. And then there's the consciousness of seeing, and then there's all the judgment and the perception that forms with the seeing. The liking, the disliking, the approval, the disapproval, and so on. Now the Puru is getting down deeper into the, the root cause of suffering in the mind, going a little bit deeper into our experience, you know, levering things up, looking more deep, deeply, going down to the cause, the root of things. That needs training, that needs the willingness to train and keep turning back to look at our experience, bringing up this mindfulness. And it's something we have to do a lot. You know, the Buddha said to Ananda, do it a lot. Bhavita Bahulikata, do it a lot. Do it much. Do it more. Do it even more. You know, it's something we have to keep coming back to. And of course that can be tiring and frustrating, but then we have no choice. We have to just keep working at it little by little. And once you understand this principle, it's the pro process of developing the, the one who knows, then it doesn't matter quite so much what's coming up because the world is very unpredictable. Our life is unpredictable, our mind is unpredictable based on karma, based on what's going on. You can't be sure what's around the next corner and that's just part of the practice, isn't it? Your wisdom is reflecting on anicca, dukkha, anatta. You establish the one who knows and you reflect, oh, this is a Nietzsche, Dukkha, Anatta, whatever's happening. It's, it's, it is to be unexpected that it's unpredictable. The mind is unpredictable. You know, sometimes it's peaceful, sometimes it's agitated. And that's just the way it is. That's normal, isn't it? It's to be expected. be strange if it was peaceful all the time. It's just normal for the mind to get agitated. You can practice mindfulness of that and just be the one who knows, oh, agitation is like this, peace is like this, greed is like this, anger is like that. You just get to know your own moods without making a lot out of it. And this is applying an Ichidukha Anatta to, to your moods, to the different sense impressions you have, without making a lot of fuss, without making a big thing out of it. You're just developing that sense of being like, a mature, wise parent looking after its its kid. So you're just watching oh, today, or oh, a lot of dullness today, or oh, today a lot of depression today, or oh, today I'm feeling very sad, sorry for myself, or oh, today I was very excited. 
we're seeing all these experiences, but we don't have to grasp at them tightly, build a, them into a big self. We just know them as different impressions arising, passing away with the one who knows. You know, there's no one sitting here who hasn't experienced these different moods. We've all had agitation, we've had peace, we've had happiness, we've had sadness. That's the normal experience of human beings. And the way to deal with it is just see it as just normal, it's just the way it is. It's the mind is like this, this mood is like this, or it feels like this, it, the thoughts are like this. And then you let them go, see them all as anicca, dukkha, anatta. No big deal, you don't have to make a big thing out of it in your mind. You just know, oh, it's like that. Once you know, then it's easy, the mind just understands and lets go, because it knows. Till you know, then we have to keep bringing up this quality of knowing, developing the knowing until you understand fully. If you're suffering, it just means you're not doing it enough. You don't know enough yet, not clear enough. Probably just holding on to something too much. You have to see, well, where am I holding on? And the Buddha said, Upadana leads to bhava. Bhava is like becoming existence. It's that which leads to jati, birth. It's the level of your mind. Say so attachment leads to the level of your mind. So if you keep grasping firmly at certain mind states, then that becomes the level of your mind. If you be keep grasping and aversion, well, you become depressed. Your bhava is based on depression. If you keep grasping greed, then you become very lustful, very excited and agitated by attractive objects, and so on. The establishment of sati, sampajanya and wisdom is what reveals this to the mind. And this is where the Dhamma that takes us beyond the sense of self, and even beyond the Vinaya, comes to the Dhamma of that it's transcendent of self. It's just this quality of knowing, clearly knowing, understanding things just the way they are. Ajahn Chah said, when you establish this sense of knowing, then in a way, the practice is easy. You don't have to want anything or expect anything. You just keep knowing what's there in the present moment. It's not knowing in the past because the past is finished. It's not knowing in the future because the future hasn't happened. You can only know in the present moment. So you don't have to make a lot out of about the past or the future. You just know right now, here and now, well, what's happening, what's arising now. Establish the one who knows, and you just know oh, it's like this. The mind is agitated, the mind is peaceful. You said it's like you're standing at the bottom of a mango tree, and there's a guy up there dropping mangoes down to you. You've got a basket, you just pick up the mangoes, and you get a basket full of mangoes. You know, whatever sense impressions, moods, whatever's happening in your mind, that's just mangoes coming down for you to pick up with mindfulness and wisdom. So progress in the practice is just being willing to develop the one who knows and being willing to contemplate all experience. Not getting caught into moods of judging or I'd rather be more peaceful than this or I'd rather be somewhere else than this or don't like this, I like that, I want this, want that. Yeah, that's the way of lay people. 
always caught in their moods, always running around trying to satisfy a craving which can never be satisfied. The way of the samana is developing the one who knows the equanimity of that, just knowing oh, it's like this, people are like this, conditions are like this, my mind is like this, the thoughts and feelings are like this. And they're not sure. We just don't know what the mind will throw up next, what thought will come up, what mood will come up. But that not sure is the wisdom, isn't it? The certainty is in the fact that it's all uncertain. The body's changing, the mind changes. Even through meditation we have to be careful. When you meditate, when you practice samatha, you make the mind peaceful in samadhi. And we all crave that, we want that. But that's just the mind that's peaceful. It's not yet the kalesas that are peaceful. The Buddha said the kalesas are only peaceful through wisdom, cutting them off, seeing them, cutting them off. Samadhi supports that, but it's not the same. Peaceful kalesas needs wisdom. Peaceful samadhi is just the peaceful mind. And so it's very addictive, very attractive to have a peaceful mind. We all want that, just to feel peace. And it is necessary, but it's not the end of the practice. The end of the practice is wisdom that sees defilement as defilement. No, no, this is a defilement. This is going to cause me suffering if I grasp it. I'll drop it here. I'll leave it. If we've done it enough, then the mind is ready to do that. It just does it automatically just because it knows, oh, this is dangerous for me, this is suffering, I'm not going to get caught into this, I'm not going to grasp it, this way of thinking, this this view, I'm not going to do that because it's suffering. So I'll leave you with these thoughts for your reflection tonight.